This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am sitting down with Dr. Sharla Allegria. Dr. Allegria earned her PhD in sociology with a certificate in women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 2016 and joined the faculty at the University of Toronto in 2019. She teaches classes on work, race, class, and gender, science, knowledge, and technology stratification and inequality. Charlotte's research on inequality in the new economy, knowledge-based work, examines tech work to understand why women's representation in computing jobs has decreased since the early 1990s, despite public and private sector investment. Beyond tech work, her research examines race and gender inequality in workplaces and institutions invested in diversity and equity. Her award-winning research appears in American Journal of Sociology, Gender and Society, and Ethnic and Racial Studies. Before we get to my conversation with Sharla, I wanted to share an exciting upcoming event next week on May 25th. We're hosting a showing of the acclaimed film Coded Bias at 2.30, followed by a Q&A session with the filmmaker Shalini Kataya. The film traces how biases get embedded into the technologies that we use on a daily basis around the world, and it focuses on how disruptive technology impacts civil rights, along with how to use storytelling as a tool for social change. All events are free and open to the public, but space is limited. Visit www.etcalpoly.org to learn more about the event and to reserve your space. Hope to see you there. And now, here's my conversation with Charlotte. Hi, Sharla. Hi. Sharla, I want to start off with a quote from you in an article that I read that features your work. You begin by saying that work is a huge part of our lives, of how we think of ourselves and compare ourselves to others. But then you continue with the following. It's also a driver of inequality because your job determines whether you can feed yourself and have a nice life. I've heard that some people, not professors, but some people actively pursue jobs that they believe will allow them to separate work from life. Can we ever really do that? If so, how? I'm asking for a friend there. If not, why not? I love this question and thank you so much for starting this conversation with this just level of philosophy. So I teach classes on work and occupations and in doing that, I often start the semester thinking about like what is work and why do we do so much of it? And I think the sort of classic sociological version of this is that there are certainly ways that we allow work to define our identity, or maybe some of us try to avoid allowing work to define our identity and define the ways that we can live our lives. But it's really hard to see how under a sort of capitalist political economic system, we still need to earn wages. And so in so much as you know, we live under capitalism and it remains intact and we need money and we earn that by working for wages and we exchange it for life's necessities. And I know I'm going back to like, this is Marx and Weber that I'm citing uh, in this, but it's, it's really hard to see how without a sort of radical revolution to our political economic system, and we can divorce work, we can separate work from the inequality that that comes out of having more, having less, you know, access to, to wealth and access to opportunity. 
How do we think about something like social capital in that context? Like, for example, going back to my friend, the professor, or me, you know, I became a professor not for the money. I don't know that many people go into academia for the money, but rather because the work had some dignity attached to it for me. How do we think about that in the context of either separating our identity from our work or in terms of separating work from life? (laughs) That's a really tough question. You know, I think that for a lot of us, there's this connection between like, we want to be able to take pride in what we do, what we spend so much of our time doing and find things that we, that we feel fulfilled by that we think serve some bigger, larger good. And that's super important. And those things are not always tied directly to the highest pay, right? I think probably a lot of us who go into academia could probably earn more more money doing something different. But there's a lot of, I think, really fulfillment from, from the work that we do. And I think that's true for a lot of people, right? That they really find some satisfaction in the jobs that they that they take. Uh, so of course the money isn't the only thing, right? And, and it allows us, you know, the other aspects of our jobs, I think, allow us to relate to each other or sort of understand ourselves in ways that are important and fulfilling. But there's still this underlying reality of, you know, it, it would be <laughs> maybe we'd like to kind of drop off the grid and be able to sort of live off the land. Um, but it's sort of hard to see how how that works, right? And so there's, I think, these competing tensions. For many of us, earning money is not the only thing, but it is a thing we need to balance along with all of the other things that we find satisfying in life. Like I really enjoy the research that I do. I really enjoy the connections that I make with other people. And I enjoy the autonomy that I have as a, as a professor. And that, that makes up for any, any, te- any type of lack in wages. And, and at some level, the, the money isn't the only thing, but it's something that feels inescapable. You work a lot on the idea that jobs drive inequality. Does the labor force, particularly in our moment, create new inequalities or does it reproduce existing inequalities or does it expand inequalities? How would you describe it? Yeah, so yes, (laughs) Um, I think so all of those, right? There are so many ways that the inequalities that we live with in all kinds of parts of our lives are reproduced and are sometimes created by, by work and by the labor force. Um, I love Evelyn Akano-Ben's work on work and, and, uh, and identity inequality. Um, I think she's just such a brilliant scholar looking at the ways that sort of laws and norms and expectations around citizenship and work, the ways that work is, is, is and can be regulated around things like citizenship actually create in some ways both inequality around like who is able to access which jobs, but also sort of create race and racial differences in categories and also inscribe gender into those differences too. Right. And so we can think about, um, you know, at different points in the history of the U.S. certain, or even contemporary in the contemporary moment in the U.S., depending on the kind of if you are not a U.S. citizen or if you are a U.S. citizen, you have access to different kinds of job opportunities. And we have a set of visa policies that dictate what work people can do if they're not citizens. And so, you know, at a different point in the history of the country, we didn't have the same sorts of firmness. We weren't as clear around who was a citizen, what the borders were, and who could do which kinds of work. Um, We had different policies, different regulations for different people entering from different pathways um, that shaped the kind of work that they could do. And that certainly around the the Southwest shaped 
the kinds of work that certain people could do. Um, and that was really for like establishing what we think of as like uh, Latinx identity, um, or at least the way that we've, we've come to categorize these kinds of racial distinctions. So I think this is sort of a long-winded way of saying we use work sometimes as a way that that, that reinforces other differences and can reproduce inequalities, uh, especially around race and gender, um, but also around age and other things. Sometimes work is a sort of the, 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 the differences, the inequalities in work are a byproduct of these, of these other differences, but they certainly work together. I should also say that there's another, there's another way that work that, that the labor force kind of does these things, which is that so many of our jobs, so many workplaces are organized in really hierarchical ways. There's the CEO and then there's the custodial staff. And, you know, we can think about all the, the places in between, but this hierarchical organization in workplaces, it is a form of inequality. And, and one that I think we're really sort of okay with, right? Like we have these different, these different kinds of inequality. And I think that many of us, at least you know, living in the sort of contemporary U.S., we sort of come to expect, uh, come to, we're sort of okay with inequality that comes from certain places, like inequality that comes from, you know, you have a set of skills that I don't have, and it, it's reasonable that you would be paid more for your skills that, than that might be paid if I don't have those skills that are in demand, right? And so that's one kind of inequality that we're mostly okay with. And we're sort of less okay in general with inequalities that are that are derived from what we might think of as like ascriptive characteristics, like things that are sort of that we what we generally think is sort of true of people, even if they're not like, you know, inherently essentially true, but they're relatively stable, things like race and gender, or at least relatively stable. And so we're less okay with inequality that comes from those. Although I think we can see ways that that work reproduces both versions of those inequalities. Well, maybe this is a good point to ask you a question, why is inequality an ethical issue? So I have to think about, this is, this is such a big question, right? So I think about the ethics as, you know, the, the, our morality, like what is right and, and what is wrong. And at the heart of this, I think that this is really about how much inequality is okay. And at what point does some level of inequality become wrong, right? Like, to what degree is it okay for, for Jeff Bezos to, to own, to, to have more wealth than most countries while other people don't have enough to, to be able to feed themselves, right? And so I think this is, this is really what's at the heart of this, right? So maybe there's some aspect, some amount of having more and having less that we're okay with, right? Like, so someone, you know, might have chosen to pursue computer science and I chose to pursue sociology. And those are not the same discipline in the end. Maybe there are some skills or something that are different. And maybe there are differences that emerge around that. Um, but that's not necessarily enough to, 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 to sort of give us really unequal outcomes in life or really unequal qualities. In life. And, and I think that's where, we, that's where we start to think about the ethics of inequality, right? Like how much is, is too much? Well, you brought up Jeff Bezos, so maybe this is a good place to jump into the question of the tech industry workforce and inequality in, in that context. So I guess I'm curious, in the spectrum of inequality in the workforce that you talk about, why the tech workforce? I think that many people critical of tech would acknowledge that inequality is a reality of the industry. Perhaps it's more exacerbated in that industry than anywhere else. So I can see the logic of that. Um, but as somebody who's both critical of tech and who has also worked in several other 
other industries, academia, television, just to name two, I've seen inequalities in most of them. Is there something particular or different about the dynamics of inequality in the tech industry specifically? No, I don't really think so. Like, there's a lot of ways that, you know, maybe tech is special, but eh, when it comes to inequality, I don't think it's, in my mind, it doesn't stand out as a particular example uh, in a lot of ways. There are some things about tech that I think are really interesting, like for me as a sociologist who thinks about inequality, right? So first of all, I should be clear that like my real primary interest is, is thinking about how do these sort of inequalities that kind of defined the 20th century, the sort of like defined the previous century persist in like the contemporary labor market where or our, our sort of contemporary experience where we really like reject discrimination, right? And so we have all these laws and we have all these regulations and that sort of general idea that racism is bad and we and we want to and we want to move away from discrimination. We want to move away from inequality that is solely based on race or solely based on gender. But we have all of these examples where we know that this is still happening, right? So we know that, you know, the gender pay gap is still with us. There's still a pretty significant racial pay gap. And actually, it hasn't gotten better. The racial pay gap hasn't gotten better since the 1980s. So we're moving in these directions away from the kinds of inequalities around race and gender that kind of defined the previous century. And yet they're still with us. And a better way to put this is I think the, the opportunity that I see in studying inequality in the tech industry is that there's a pretty serious awareness that there's inequality around representation, especially in the sort of core technical roles in the tech field, right? So we know that women are underrepresented. We know that Black and Latino workers are underrepresented in, in, in tech work. And there's actually like a lot of effort to, to counter that. So lots of organizations, I think, you know, the the Googles and Airbnb has a pretty cool like diversity and equity inclusion policy. There's lots of companies, Microsoft, lots of these organ these big powerful companies have these really clear diversity commitments and yet continue to have these really dramatic underrepresentation problems. And so why why I think the tech industry is important and is, is an exciting place to be able to study and make sense of this is because we see these commitments to diversity at the same time that, that we don't see a whole lot of movement around around diversity and and in some ways the tech industry is not it's it's not special it's just more transparent i think than a lot of places and it's become it, it's such a big target in terms of funding um, both at the level of the companies themselves and and the governments um, that, that are putting uh, funding together and grants around broadening participation in tech and, and science technology. I mean, you and I were chatting before we started recording, and it occurred to me just as you were talking that one of the things that, to me at least, makes the tech industry and the questions of inequality feel a little bit different than in other sectors is that the exports or the products of the tech industry are so circumambient that they circulate so globally and so absolutely that any inequality in the system of production is amplified in the outcomes of consumption. Is there something specifically at stake ethically in the context of inequality in the tech industry, in addition to the workforce and also in the kind of amplification of the consequences of the workforce being unequal? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely, you're absolutely right. So I can talk about the sort of, you know, inequality generating processes or, you know, kind of use that sort of sociological speak to think about it at the workforce level. But when it comes to the products of, of the tech field, inequality in the products of, of tech work actually, I think, become really poignant, right? So we've got lots of examples of the ways that 
when we're not attentive to the unequal sort of use uh, or the unequal application of tech products that that it can become really hazardous, right? So one of the examples that I don't know kind of keeps me up at night is the idea that the our autonomous vehicle technology is more likely to strike darker skinned pedestrians. Like that's a big deal, right? If we're going to move towards cars that drive themselves and they're more likely to to hit and potentially injure or even kill folks with with darker skin, like that's a really that's really serious. And there's lots of examples like this, right? The, the search results that are, are more likely to suggest criminality for names that are associated with um, people of color. There's medical technology that suggests a different kind of care, um, particularly related to pain management for Black patients. So we, we, see, we see these things. There are also examples of this kind of inequality uh, in the products of other industries, but the stakes feel high when it comes to the tech industry because it's so easy to say or to just think without you know without really sort of critically looking at where these technologies come from and how they how they come into the world that well this is based on an algorithm it's just math it's not bias it's not discrimination it's not any of these things it's just it's just math and they, you know that the the card just calculated what was you know the best path and 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 to sort of shock the inequality that can come out of that can come out of the process of designing new technologies uh, to you know sort of neutral you know value free judgments but that's not necessarily the case so when it comes to thinking about diversity in the tech industry this actually really matters we we see that more diverse teams tend to be able to to solve these sorts of problems before they become, you know, headline <laughs> issues, before they become embarrassments to the company, which might be one one reason to address them, but before they become these large scale drivers of inequality where, you know, we have facial recognition software that is not as effective uh, when it comes to recognizing the faces of people of color. And that's also often used by by police for exact that purpose. So before we get to this level of reinscribing these inequalities at the sort of societal level, more diverse workforces and technology could actually really help us. I want to shift to talk a little bit about gender, which is an area of your expertise in the context of inequality in work. One major element of your published work, and I'm quoting the title here, Escalator or Stepstool, Gendered Labor and Token Processes in Tech Work, is that concept of the glass escalator. What is the glass escalator? So the glass escalator is, is from, from Christine Williams, and it's this idea that there are certain occupations that are where the workforce is, is sort of predominantly female, but also the work is sort of like we think of as sort of associated with femininity, where men in these occupations, so like nursing and elementary school teachers, we sort of associate this with femininity. And so men in these occupations tend to find themselves promoted quite quickly from sort of entry level rank and file positions up up to management. And there was a few sort of processes that sort of result in this. So um, they're able to make, there are more men in kind of authoritative positions. They're able to make stronger connections with those folks and they tend to get promoted faster, but also their coworkers, their women coworkers see them as better qualified for management. And so kind of at the, at the heart of this, right at the core of some of this, or one of the sort of core processes in this is is this idea that we like to sort of match people with the way that we understand the job. And so if we think of management as authoritative and sort of masculine, we kind of would rather see men in those in those kind of authoritative masculine roles. And we it's a sort of a mismatch, like a gendered mismatch. Um, and so people tend to be a little bit more comfortable or sort of like to see them promoted uh, into the principal position instead of the, the, the kindergarten teacher position. 
And so this is part of, and I'm going to go back even further from Christine Williams' work, which was in the 1990s, to Elizabeth Muff Cantor's work in the 1970s, where she's identifying token processes. So for Williams, this is a kind of token process. This is so when you, when folks are like tokens in an occupation, for Cantor, this was like, she had a very specific cutoff. It was 15% or less. But when there's a small number of people from any particular group in an occupation, we might think of them as tokens. And there's a variety of challenges that, that she theorized tokens in, in any occupation would face. She was primarily looking at women in corporate settings. So this is from her book, Men and Women of the Corporation. And so she's looking primarily at women in corporate settings. And there's all of this, this variety of, of challenges that they face along the way. And so William's intervention in this is really to say that like, okay, yes, for women who are tokens, there's a set of challenges and they're not promoted and they're, they're not experiencing the same level of like career mobility that we might expect based on their qualifications and their competencies. For men in situations where they're tokens, this is just not what we see. So Williams is able to show us that actually when men are tokens in occupations um, that, that we sort of associate with women and femininity, we don't see the same challenges that women face. Actually, we see this kind of glass escalator process where they sort of move up quickly and in almost independent of their own particular goals or actions in in the in the setting. And so the the paper that you're my paper my my sort of I don't know statement in this is I'm looking at um, women in in tech and you know sort of particularly kind of engineering software related technology kinds of positions. And what I what I found is that. The women in his positions, um, many of whom had degrees in computer science, had, you know, previously worked as uh, software developers, engineers, had this sort of trajectory where someone would like identify a manager would identify their people skills and um, suggest that they move into management or, or project management, uh, a role that was sort of not at the highest level. It was not, it was certainly not on the trajectory towards like the C-suite, the executive, the chief, the chief officer of something, but that they were kind of moving into these middle management positions. And so I, I refer to this as a more of a, a step stool than an escalator. And what I was seeing is that these women were in areas that are where they are uh, predominated by men and are sort of associated with masculinity. And it was the idea that they were they had stronger people skills um, that folks would identify and encourage them to move up. But the steps up were were relatively small. And in some cases, their coworkers actually sort of looked down on them. So it was not necessarily a step up in terms of status, although it may have been a step up in terms of the sort of like organizational chart, the specific hierarchy of the organization, but they were not, it wasn't clear what their next step from there would be. So it was a relatively small step up and it was really based on some perceptions about their like personal skills. And it wasn't clear where the, where their next step would be. And of course, many of them found next steps and were able to move up from there as well. I mean, finally, shops to be really satisfying, but it, it was a little bit different from the glass escalator. So here's a question. What are the consequences of this happening for the women who get moved into these kind of mid-management roles? It depends. <laughs> there were some different kinds of consequences for some of them. I think that one of the clear things was that they were no longer doing core technical work and they no longer felt that they could really claim coding and programming this kind of development engineering work as part of their skill set 
right? So they were moving in the management direction. They were moving out of, out of the core technology work and into more of management work. And for many of them, this was great, right? It was really fulfilling. So I, I think about tech companies or, or, or many of these folks um, in positions where, you know, these are big companies and they have lots of different people doing lots of different things. So the, even though I might think of them as like tech companies, like tech work is only one part of what's actually happening. There's a whole big business side of the company that's managing everything from logistics to sales to, to contracting to deciding what the next product is going to be. And they're doing this work that's really bridging between the, the technical side of the company and the business side of the company. And it seemed like for many of them, they felt like the business folks really valued their both their technical expertise and their ability to have a conversation about the technology to sort of translate and be that bridge between the technical side of the work that they were doing and the business side of the company. Right? So many of them found these positions to be really fulfilling, but you know they, they couldn't really necessarily claim that they were engineers anymore. And they also, many of them actually missed like writing code um, for a lot of, for some of them who had that background. But for a lot of them, it let them better balance their personal, like their sort of work and their home lives in ways that they really valued. And it also was a step up and they had some real pride in the place that they had achieved in terms of the company, you know, the, the, the organizational hierarchy um, as well. Many of them aspired to, to higher up roles and were sort of figuring out how they could aim for the vice president kind of title. But I take your point, which is that they should be able to have agency in choosing which direction to go, and that agency should be equal to the agency of their male counterparts. And, and now, you know, question that popped in my head when you were talking was we were talking before about the importance of equality, not just in the process, but also because the outcomes amplify any inequalities in the workforce. And so my question is, what are what are the consequences, not just for the for the women, but for the technologies that ultimately get produced when women are taken out of the kind of coding process and the engineering process. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, that, that I keep coming back to when, in thinking about this is that some, I shouldn't say probably many, but there's a fair number of, of women who are in these positions who moved from technical teams to these kinds of management roles. And they were explicit in saying that I just, I was just fed up with the hostility in the engineering team. I just I like the work I'm doing, but I just didn't, I just need to take that anymore. I just didn't need to do it anymore. And I moved in this direction and now these people value me and I don't have to put up with that kind of hostility. And I keep thinking about that because one of the things that happens because the, because so many of these women were able to move into these managerial positions was that the technical teams no longer have any pressure <laughs> to, to be less hostile, right? So that pressure that they felt to maybe address some of the ways that they thought about gender to be more inclusive, you, you relax when the women move into these managerial positions. And I, and, and I know that this is maybe a little bit of a roundabout way of getting here, but I think this actually really matters when we think about the kinds of products that these teams are producing. So when we see that you know the there's gendered hostility in the team, and so the women leave and find other ways to be able to contribute, they're still hopefully contributing in meaningful ways to the technology, but they're not in the core of producing it, right? They're not like doing the diagnostic test. They're not writing the code. They're not the ones who are solving the problems. And, and this is this sort of black box that can, that can emerge that, that, that happens when we create 
technologies and leave the logic of how it gets created unexamined. So when we don't have the pressure on the team to be more inclusive, to think, to, to include people who, who think in, in different ways, uh, to, to include that more, what I'm going to call intellectual diversity in the condition of the technology, in the actual process of making it, um, this is when we start to find ourselves confronted with these technologies that don't work equally well for everyone and, and can, can potentially be dangerous for some group of people. I can't help think, by the way, as you were talking about the flip side of the phenomenon that you investigate, which is that women are stereotyped as being more communicative and more personable and therefore get pulled into more managerial roles. There's a second stereotype that is there embedded in that logic, which is that technologists, unlike managers, do not need soft skills, don't need to be personable, right? What are the consequences that that stereotype has for tech workplace culture? So I have to admit, this worries me a little. <laughs> I think that one of the really important sort of pieces from the literature that helps me to frame and think about this is um, Wendy Faulkner's piece with a really great title. It's Nuts and Bolts and People. And there's something after the semicolon there, but that's not the part that sticks with me. It's the nuts and bolts and people part. And she has this sort of t- this story about talking to uh, a, 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 a someone who a man who had been in engineering for for quite a while and explaining that you know engineering is nuts and bolts and people that of course there's the you know the technical components of it but there's also working into working interpersonally with other people and designing things that are that are useful for other people and then she goes on to sort of explain this technical social dualism in engineering, where we sort of have this idea that you can either be technical or you can be social. And these are, you know, it's a binary, you've got to choose one. Then they're they're sort of diminishing in their, you know, opposition to each other. So to the degree to which you are social, you must not be technical. And to the degree to which you are technical, you must not be social. And it is really worrying to me to think that there there may be some idea out there that having or interpersonal skills suggests at least to others that you might in fact be a better engineer. And I really just hope that something we can move away from, I, I have this like idea that maybe this is something of the past. This paper was published, you know, like 15 years ago or something. So maybe we can, we can leave that behind a little bit. But it is, I think, to the degree that it's still with us, kind of troubling. But it's also, I think, really important to point out that, like, we are, I don't, regardless of how technical and how sophisticated the technology is that folks are working with, people need to be able to use it. This work is actually done in teams. And there's tons of research on this that bigger teams, more collaborative teams, more diverse teams produce better products. So if we want products that are going to work better for the larger majority of people, then we want more diverse teams producing them. And that's going to require engineers to have those kinds of people skills so that they can work with folks who come from different um, intellectual and demographic backgrounds. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. My, my statement is that we want our technologies to best reflect our human values. So it's important that the people who are creating those technologies understand the concepts embedded in human values, and what, what that actually looks like. I wanted to pick up on your comment about keeping kind of diverse teams and the, the significance of that for creating better technologies that can better serve the spectrum or range of human experiences and human values. And we talk a lot about 
how to get diverse people with diverse backgrounds into the tech workforce. But it seems equally important, I think, to keep people with diverse backgrounds in the technology sector. And the work that you're outlining suggests that the divisions um, happen at a critical moment where those who are coming with diverse backgrounds often meet uh, hostile teams, oftentimes have experience that then kind of move them outside of the sphere of production in a kind of hands-on way. How do we keep people with diverse backgrounds in the tech sector? This is such a huge question that I don't think we've really entirely cracked it yet. So, I mean, I think that one of the things for the, especially for the the women who I talked to who are like, I just needed to find a way to stop working in such a hostile space. <laughs> There's having more women in those spaces would have actually made a really huge difference, right? So I think we can actually, we can keep more underrepresented workers by recruiting more underrepresented workers. But of course that's not, we're working on it, right? I think lots of folks are working on that. I think also for a lot of, for a lot of these folks, just having more um, flexibility and autonomy in their schedules actually makes a pretty big difference to be able to work around their family responsibilities. And, you know, I think that we often think about family and care responsibilities as something that women deal with, as this is like a gendered issue. But to be entirely, I think if we're a little bit more um, reflexive about that, like men appreciate um, time with their families as well, and also want to be able to have the autonomy to kind of weave their work and their family lives around each other, uh, and, and to be able to support, to be able to support their families and their partners as well. So I don't think this is just something that women deal with. It's something that that, that people <laughs> that people deal with. It's a really human challenge. So having more flexibility to be able to work from home, if that makes sense, or to work from an office, if, if that helps <laughs> as well, to be able to leave and come back um, to projects at different times of the day help too. But also having, I think, more realistic expectations for folks, uh, which probably means dialing back on like the release date, you know, maybe the release date can get pushed back another week so that the the workers can have um, a little bit more flexibility to be able to manage their personal, their, their family lives as well. You know, when you and I last spoke, it was in the context of a panel titled Tech Intersectionality Examined. Intersectionality, for our listeners, just to give a brief definition of the term, is a term that Professor Kimberly Crenshaw coined to describe the way that different forms of social inequality or disadvantage are actually impacted by belonging to other identity categories. And the, she looks at kind of that overlap, in particular, at how the experience of women is often shaped by other dimensions of their identity, such as race or class. So I wanted to make sure when I speak of women in technology, I'm careful to not generalize a large group of tech workers who oftentimes experience that space in very different ways, given other facets of their identity. How do experiences differ across identity categories within that group of women in tech? Yeah, so when I described the sort of glass step stool phenomenon, it was really only white women who had that experience. In my interviews with uh, women of color in tech, and, and this is true for Asian women, for, for Black women, uh, for Latino women, really across the board, this idea that they may be sort of have their, you know, have the supervisor recognize their people skills and, and encourage them um, to pursue a promotion into management was just not, it was just not, that just didn't happen. And so for the women of color I interviewed, they had a sort of plan, a career path that they were attempting to follow and they were working their plan when they were moving into to management. It was because they had an MBA in addition to their qualifications um, for the technical work that they were doing. And so I, I get, I get a couple of things out of this. 
this. One is that when we talk about the ways that work is gendered, it's also racialized. And I think even as sociologists and people who think about intersectionality sometimes, or people who think intersectionally, sometimes we forget we can sort of lose track of that when we talk about gender, that gender and race are sort of always kind of enmeshed um, together, at least in our experience and in the way that we think about people and work. Um, the other important thing here is that we have lots of policies and good intentions about moving beyond racial discrimination, but it remains a consistent part of the experience for women of color and certainly in professional jobs. Um, and we see it in, in tech work and, and in, in lots of places as well. And this is true, I think, even for Asian women, you know, where the sort of racial stereotypes might be a little bit different, they still don't have the same kinds of um, access to promotion that, that white women are experiencing, at least in my study. Are there any particular stories that you can share with us that you think are maybe especially emblematic or telling of uh, experiences of women that you talk to in tech as a sociologist? Yeah, for sure. So there was one story that just really, really stuck with me. Um, so there was one uh, black woman who works at a big uh, multinational um, tech company, and she was deeply engaged and excited to be part of the sort of tech community in the sort of Silicon Valley, um, San Francisco Bay area. And she wanted to move into um, software engineering and programming and had started as like an IT video specialist or technician shortly out of as a as a young person in her 20s and aspired to, to this kind of engineering position. So she was explaining um, starting out in this company where actually her father had worked. He was a technologist. Um, and he moved, she was able to sort of get this position doing IT work kind of through his connections. And so she explained in this, uh, I'm quoting her now, I started out doing kind of like technical support for video. And then I worked my way up to IT when I started going to school. I started in computer assistance administration, got certificates, all that sort of thing. Then I got a job in IT working as a technical support specialist. I was there about nine years. Now, I just want to like explain that nine years is forever in technology. And so she was in school, she was doing, she was pursuing programming. She had lots of skills and expertise and she was in this IT position, sort of a help desk position for nine years. So she goes on from there. I put myself through school again and I wanted to go to the programming side, which is computer science and programming. And so I started going and taking computer science classes and learning how to do programming in C++. And then I got an offer to get a, a position that uh, the company that she was at working in the help desk. So she had moved from, from an IT position into a help desk position. She was still doing basically, uh, she was still doing really similar work, even though she had experience and in, 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 in coursework in um, programming. She, you know, could you know program in C++ and all these different languages. And this was so striking to me, partly because I had also interviewed another, another woman who was a white woman um, who had a background. She had a degree in, I think, English literature or something unrelated to, to computing and actually had the same job. She was in the exact same role as the first Black woman who had been working to, to get herself out of that position and into a more um, programming focused role for a decade. Um, so they actually had the same position. As, and the white woman went uh, for her you know, first interview with another very large tech company. 
um, having had no real experience in the area, but, um, you know, really good Google skills and, you know, sort of the ability to sort of train herself and find the answers and learn. And that had resulted in them landing the exact same job. It's a telling story. I wanted to shift and move now into thinking about the kind of culture of Silicon Valley and its impact outside Silicon Valley. I recently had Dan Lyons, who has written for the show Silicon Valley and who has written a number of books about Silicon Valley in conversation with me. I don't know when the episode will come out, but in preparing for that conversation, I read his book, which is descriptively titled Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Ruined Work for the Rest of Us. And And as I read, I got more and more alarmed and disturbed by what he was describing. It's not just that the work culture of Silicon Valley, much of which is deeply inequitable, now sets the tone, as he argues, for work culture across many different arenas, but also that tech products and an industry mandate for disruption now displaces workers across multiple industries. And it's not just as though the disrupted workers can be retrained for new jobs, as in, yeah, the robot will take your job, but now you go to work assembling the robots and we pay you more the same amount. Tech companies on average uh, hire fewer people than they displace. And for the workers that they do hire who have the skill levels of the people that they displace, they pay much lower wages. How should we be thinking about this dimension of the tech industry and inequality? This is the part that I think worries me. I don't know. There are two things that worry me. It's the the inequality around the technical products and this. And I'm going to describe this as a managerial, a set of managerial innovations. So this is not actually about the specific technologies that are coming out. This is not like, in the, like my iPhone is cool. This is not about the actual technologies. This is about the way that their work is organized. So one of the things that I do in, in my work and occupations class with, with my students is I, I have this graph that I compare. I sort of show them the number of workers at Kodak in the like 1990s um, and compare that to the number of workers at Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple. And it's really striking. <laughs> there were, in fact, a lot more workers at Kodak. And I think that Kodak is, an, is a sort of a nice example um, because it was sort of the high-tech company of the 80s and 90s, you know, of a different moment. And we, it's absolutely true that these companies work um, and manage to, to be extremely profitable, um, hiring and, and, and having full-time employment for far fewer people. This is not, though, about the technology that they're doing, that they're producing. This isn't about the robots that are, that are maybe going to take our jobs. This is actually, I think, really fundamentally about the way that we organize work. And it's not specific to the tech industry, although I think the tech industry is at the leading edge of some of it, which is actually partly why I'm, why I'm so interested in studying the tech industry. And so this is not uh, simply because we have technology to replace people but that we have contracts to replace full-time employees. And so uh, if you look at a company like Apple doesn't have full-time custodial staff who are Apple employees, they're going to contract that work out to another company. There's a a really lovely uh, spread on this comparing to uh, custodial workers as um, at Kodak and Apple. And what's, I think, important about that particular spread is that Eventually, there's Gail Evans started out at Kodak as a custodial worker and eventually went to school, went, to, went back to school and um, retrained and, and became the chief technology officer. And that is just not possible 
at Apple in this contemporary moment because the custodial workers are not Apple employees. So if you look at, if we were to look at the number of people who are doing work for Apple uh, or, or any of these other technology companies, it might look really it would look there's a lot more people who are doing work for these companies than who are full-time employees of these companies and it's not simply the technology firms that are doing this lots of firms are doing it but they're maybe doing it in a more in a more wholesome way this is this is not simply a problem of technology this is something that we have to grapple with at a sort of much larger sort of social level to think about what we expect um, the relationship between workers and employers to be, right? That there's, I'm going to use the phrase social contract. There was a sort of moment in the U.S. and I think in lots of lots of industrialized places where we had this, I, this sort of social contract between labor and capital or this idea that workers would, you know, would work and they would be productive and that the company would sort of have this agreement, like the sort of understanding that they would, provide that they would provide long-term employment, that jobs would be stable, that they would pay a living wage, that they would take care of things like health insurance and um, retirement savings and things like that. And, and this is just dissolved, right? This is just largely gone. And we see this happening in tech companies, but they're not the only ones who are doing it. This is happening in lots of places, in lots of ways. Including academia. Uh, including academia. This is sort of broad scale. So it's not like <laughs> I'm way less worried about the robot taking my job than I am about like, like I might get a job like assembling the robot, but I won't be working for that company anymore. And it'll be more of a, a, a gig than, than full-time long-term employment. This calls for a whole different set of just ways of re-examining work that we can no longer expect people will have full-time employment that pays for their health insurance. And I think that this really requires a very deep and serious uh, introspection on what we ask for our, from, our, from our government, from our employers, and, and the relationship uh, between the two. I've read that your interest in the tech industry is part of a broader interest you have in knowledge work. What is knowledge work? So knowledge work broadly is is really any kind of work that that requires. I want to use the word skills and training, but the truth of it is, I think there are lots of jobs that we think of that we don't not normally think of as knowledge work that require lots of skills and training. <laughs> but this is specifically like work that is generating new technologies or, or new kinds of information. So as academics, we're knowledge workers, but lots of folks are, uh, but any kind of job that requires specific credentials and skills and training um, and, is, and is particularly generating more information and, and technology. I'm very curious about this because I teach Yuval Noah Harari's book, uh, Homo Deus. And in that book, he talks about the kind of new information liberation, not the idea that we should liberate knowledge, but in a sense that knowledge should be free. Of course, knowledge is not free. You might get it for free on Wikipedia, but the person who contributed that knowledge so that Wikipedia could put it up had to be paid by a university, for example, or in some way in order to generate that knowledge that then Wikipedia picks up for free. How do we think about the space of technologies in that kind of knowledge work? Knowledge work is 
increasingly, I think, coming up against the idea that knowledge should be free. And there's kind of two spectrums of this, right? The, for the first spectrum is open source. But of course, with open source material that is free, there is a cost nonetheless attached to the generation of knowledge. And that tab is picked up typically by a university or by a grant or something like that, so that Wikipedia, for example, could spread that knowledge for free. And I think we're in a kind of really interesting moment. On the one hand, you know, there's a mandate, I think very fairly, to take the knowledge developed in something like a biopharmaceutical company and, and use that to create a template for other spaces around the world to use to create a vaccine, right? That seems to me to be a fair use. Then I think about the knowledge economy and you know, maybe if I'm a tenured professor at Stanford, it would be reasonable for me to put my knowledge online in an open source place. It would not be reasonable for me to demand that Wikipedia, for example, compensate me for that knowledge. If I'm contingent faculty and I am being paid very little for my labor and I don't have the guarantee that my labor in any way will be outwardly compensated for that, and I'm of course contributing labor to free for free to journals or things like that, I wonder about the direction of kind of that idea that information should be free, that knowledge work in a sense should be open source. There are a few things that come to mind, right? One is that knowledge on the internet is this sort of combination of commercial, like commercially free and coercively produced, I want to say, right? Like Wikipedia, there are a variety of, of, of ways that like Wikipedia is created and, and funded. And people do go and like generate content on Wikipedia. There's dramatic inequalities in terms of the diversity of like people who are producing content for Wikipedia. But then there's also, you know, like open source software programs that companies like Intel have full-time staff who are who are producing parts of this, who are working full-time on, on some of these open source packages because Intel uses it and needs it to be sound and and and, and so there are, I think, some ways that it is absolutely not free <laughs> um, because people are getting paid for their work. But then there's also the the spaces where, like you were mentioning, like, you know, contingent faculty. One of the things that I think that we sort of lose track of is the way that, like, we're in academia, but also outside of academia and all kinds of spaces where folks are doing kind of freelance independent contract-based work. Like, you want folks to to see you. You want to be recognized. And so generating content, making like, you know, useful comments on GitHub and putting your packages, putting your whatever it is, whatever content you're generating, putting these things on online and in, and in spaces that are open and accessible helps you to build your brand uh, with the hope of being able to like get some kind of uh, salary out of it, which is not, that's not exactly free, right? It's done freely with the hope of sort of um, making something else out of it, but it's, uh, I want to say coercive and extractive in some ways. But then also like, let's, you know, like, like let's not pretend that while Wikipedia may be free for me to access when I do it, there's an internet service provider and a browser that's monitoring my traffic and generating ads for me <laughs> that they're paid for based on things that they know that I've looked up. There are all of these commercial venues, commercial ventures that are behind the generation and consumption of like free to me knowledge. 
Oh, totally. It's just that the person who created the knowledge usually doesn't get a cut of the advertisement dollars that are generated as revenue. Is there a link that you see between knowledge work and the kind of inequality we're seeing emerging in severe ways right now in our culture? I'm tempted to make a distinction between like what we think of as knowledge work and what we would not think of as knowledge work. And I think that that line is getting increasingly blurred, right? So if I think about knowledge work as like work that is producing new information and technologies and other kinds of work, right? So like transportation, I think is increasingly blurred. I think that there's a sort of temptation to think about um, folks like Uber drivers as like part of the tech world, right? That I think really increasingly blurs that. But one of the connections that I want to make there is this sort of the work that we do to have work <laughs> and the the hustle um, that so many of us are engaged in, whether it's producing new information and new knowledge and new technologies, or it's finding our next gig so that we can drive someone or run a private like hotel room out of our homes or whatever it is that so many of us are hustling and you know the sort of content production on the internet is one version of that hustle but it's happening in so many different ways we're coming to the end of our time so i wanted to use the last question to talk about the context of academia and teaching and the next generation are there ways that colleges training the next generation of technologists and humanists and sociologists can intervene into the problems that you lay out are there ways that we can or should change the ways that we train our students the next generation of tech workers across that spectrum of backgrounds, humanists, sociologists, political scientists, technologists, people in STEM, that might shift the outcomes of inequality that you describe? I think it's really important that we train folks to critically ask where things come from, but also to value diversity. I mean, like intellectually value diversity to think about what are the sort of logics that underpin ideas? What are they taking for granted? And and I think that, you know, having real meaningful conversations about ethics and about our goals and what it is we value is super important. I mean, you know, I'm a sociologist. And so I, I like to think that, that sociology helps students with that kind of critical thinking too, but just to be able to be reflexive about where our ideas come from, where our information comes from, how these things get produced is super important. And and even more than that, to have the experience of being in spaces with diverse intellectual traditions and diverse ways of thinking and, and to learning to really find the strength that comes from diversity, I think really helps us to make technology that's more equitable, to establish managerial practices at the levels of companies that are more equitable, to be able to demand and and request and even get more, um, not just from our employers, but from the way that we organize access to opportunities. I like to end with a question about what advice you might give to the next generation of students. But in your case, and in doing the research for this conversation, I already found your advice. And to students and young workers entering the job market today, you said that, and I'm going to quote you here, it's important to collect as many skills as you can, learn to write well, learn to use data, learn to give a good, thoughtful presentation. These things are important in any job. And organize for labor rights. That's a big thing for sure. But most importantly, you advise them to, and I'm going to quote you again, learn how to learn. The world changes so fast that you need to be able to retool and recalibrate your skills. I love that advice. I think that, you know, again, you've all known Harari, who 
I mentioned uh, and I teach in my class says that, you know, as a medievalist, if you looked around in that period of time at what the world would look like, it would look in a hundred years like it looked in that moment. Of course, now I think if somebody asked me what the world would look like in a hundred years, I would say I have absolutely no idea. So I think that kind of adaptability, the ability to learn how to learn is just quite profound. But you've already given that advice. So maybe instead, I'll ask you a follow-up question to that advice. What do you wish that you had known as a student? What would somebody have told you or what could have somebody have showed you that would have really made a difference had you known it back then? I think so as an undergraduate student, I think that's who you're most you know thinking about, right? I was just so naive in so many ways. I don't think I had any real understanding of the entire universe of things that I had no understanding about. And I think it probably would have helped me to recognize that there is just this whole world of access to information and social capital, cultural capital that other folks had that I that I that I didn't have as, a, as an undergraduate student. And I think I made up for that or not made up for it, but I worked hard. <laughs> but, you know, lots of folks do. I'm certainly not special for that in any way. But I guess I, I would have liked to have someone tell me what would have been more useful, uh, you know, more useful ways of spending my time. Really focusing on things like data and, you know, methodology as an undergraduate student. I was, honestly, I was terrified of uh, math and statistics as an undergraduate student. And I, I hope that, you know, you, your students and, and folks who are listening here don't have that same hang up that I did. But I had, I don't know, one day, I think I was a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts and David Court was the professor who one day sort of out of the blue, like unprompted was like, you know, sort of mentioned to me like, oh, you know, for someone like yourself who was technologically inclined, I have no idea what came after that, that the rest of that sentence, he just casually described me as technically inclined. I was like, really? <laughs> because for so long, for so much of my life, I really thought of myself as someone who was bad with technology and bad at math. And I was the TA, the graduate, the TA for the, what was the sort of second semester, the second class in the sequence of statistics classes for PhD students. So like, you don't really get to be in that position by being bad at math. I think what I eventually came to realize, and largely because he made that one offhanded comment that one day, is that I was really never actually bad at math. I just kind of had this, had this hang up, this idea that like other people were better at this than me and I was better at other things than this. And I don't know, it just, it stuck and I'm sure it was entirely gendered, but it really stuck. And so I think if I could go back and sort of give myself some advice, it would be that like, just because something doesn't come easy to you doesn't mean that you can't do it or that you're bad at it or it's beyond your out of your reach. And I just wanted to pull out a thread of something that you said there, which is that it matters what your professors tell you about your abilities can have a really big impact. So that's what I'm going to take out of that for myself as well. Thank you so much, Sharla, for this conversation. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.